Camilla, should we go somewhere to go see what we can grab for the fashion show? Oh, hello, Michelle. Hello, hello Geordie. That's my scary, spooky voice. I've got in my hands... It's a bit dusty now, but do you remember Jane Beacon? She gave us this wonderful book, The Chamber's Dictionary of the Unexplained. (laughs) It's quite a tome. It's quite the tome. And I'd like to be able to uh, talk about this today. But first of all, let's introduce ourselves. I'm Geordie. And I'm Michelle. And you're listening to Eavesdropping the Podcast. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome to the conversation uh, or listening in. In fact, Michelle and I are together at the moment. Normally, we don't live in the same house, but right now we are together having the time of our lives. And I did notice, Michelle, today when we were shopping and bopping and whatever it was we were doing, usually it's in a charity shop and people were listening. I think you were talking about your home life work-life balance oh my god in the shop now I'm worried you were over by the clothing and I was standing by the bowls the woman was next to me so she could hear you we were having a shouting conversation across the shop what was I saying I said to him and I he said to me that was the conversation something like that and then I said this and I was like, how dare he? All of this was going but on. I didn't realise there was another lady up there. I thought it was just the two of us. She was standing next to me. God, I sound like a fucking monster. No, no. It was all taken out of context. But that maybe that's what we do when we're recording this very podcast, Michelle. You know, people are listening to us. I actually think it was the other way around this morning. Do you remember we were in that charity store and there was that lady going on about, ah. oh, I'm colour blocking this and I believe in diversity, that. And she was being a complete complete yes. passive aggressive psycho there's a lot of passive and aggression. i said to you it's like we're not here yeah and that's the first time we've ever been ignored, ignored. how dare you we were silent silently sifting through the clothing <laughs> wishing it hadn't been color blocked because what a mistake don't do that in charity shops it's not bond street calm down nobody shops by color we just want our size bridges we just want dresses the product we want dresses in exactly. size order product shirts block. inside product order. block in size order come on. come on you're talking to an xvm here window dresser by the way yes I know my shit. You do. (laughs) And also, it makes you just get so fatigued. You get shopping fatigue when it's set out like that. It's ridiculous. Yeah, you do. And you get a bit... You're bored. And you'll just walk away and you won't... That's why people always say to me, I don't know how you get so many nice things in charity shops. I haven't got the time or the inclination to go into those places, Mm. they'll say to me. And I now I'm starting to get it. It does take a lot of effort. It's funny. I love a charity shop. Always have. My sister, Steph... She doesn't like them. She doesn't like chasing. It's not for her. It's not for everyone. Well, it used to be like foraging for gold for me, but now they're trying to make it like a fashion store. I mean, I blame Mary's Living and Giving, you know, Mary Portis, who is wonderful, by the way. It's okay for a high-end shop. You know you're going in there and you're going to be spending a bit more for something that's like a designer what do they used to call those things? Those designer rewear dress agency. It's like a dress agency rather than a charity shop. Consignment stores. But it's not like that. A charity store is, they got given it for free. And I'll tell you, yeah. I was in there the other day. There was a t-shirt, nothing special. It was from H&M. Still had the tag on. Tag said, 
£3.99. They were selling it for £6.99. <laughs> Come on, guys. Come on. I thought. We're not dum-dums. That's a joke. What a fucking joke. Anyway, I know it's for charity. I shouldn't be complaining, but. They do have overheads. Come on. But uh, we, we don't have to buy those things. We can't just go buy new. <laughs> <laughs> Anywho, here I am. I've got my book. Now, Michelle, it's been a bit uh, bereft of Supernatural. Some people don't like it too fucking bad. Sorry, guys. But we got gifted this wonderful book and I really want to make use of it because it's huge. Listen, that's all the pages. It's chockers. There's so many pages in there. I want you to fan it. I don't want you to do the chunky page. I want you to do the... Hang on. Oh, it's so massive. It's a... There, I fanned it. See, that gives you a very yeah, good indication of how big that book is. It's massive. And that's like just a corner of the internet, not even a corner. That's like a fraction of the internet. That's somebody's tiny little spittle out of the corner of their mouth fraction of the internet. That's what that I book is. I just opened up to this really interesting page, actually, Michelle. It is a man. Oh, there's just, I've lost the page, but I found something else interesting. It's like flicking through the 40 and times, times oh. 1,000. It's amazing puritanical english ministers oh my god that must be witch hunting we've, that we've done that fucking terrifying that already what's an imbolc what's that a what again it's it's about the sabbaths and the pagans it's something to do with witchcraft sorry it's not all about it gemini it's in here you're a Gemini. I am a Gemini, Gem, Gem, Gemini. It's the third sign of the Zodiac between Taurus and Cancer. I thought you were going to say the third sign of the devil. Gemini's are said to be outgoing and inquisitive, nah. although they can be inconsistent and two-faced. What? I mean, they just say that because Gemini is the twin, so they just want you to be like, oh, you can be nice and you can be horrible. Well, every fucking person can be nice and horrible. True. Just saying. <laughs> I'm shutting this book. Because I've done my research and I know what I'm going to talk about today. I guess we should explain to our eavesdroppers. Why am I flicking through the Chambers Dictionary of the Unexplained? It's a research resource. It is indeed. And so what we did, you did a lucky dip, didn't you? I did do a lucky dip and I found a few things and we came up with a bit of a theme for this week's episode. And you just sort of picked out two names and then you picked two out for me, but I only did one. So... That's where we're going to start today. Okay. What do you think? We should just dive straight in, prepare them well, for some supernatural super, super, super stories. Supernatural. Ghost is in a wall. Supernatural. Poltergeist at all. Supernatural. We are chatting supernatural. Supernatural. Yeah, I'm going to dive right in because I'm first. That's right. And I look forward to your deep dive into whatever it was that we found in the book last couple of weeks ago. I can't remember. I had two names. I really only got through one because it's fascinating. There's so much. Yeah, and it took a dark twist. Oh, A dark twist, Geordie. All of this stuff that I'm about to tell you, it all takes place in the 80s. The 80s. 80s. We're living in the 80s. I love the 80s. Best decade ever. Best decade. Especially for us because we weren't paying bills at the time. Yeah, and you know what? It had good fashion. It had good music. Leg warmers. Recession skirts. What's a recession skirt? Fisherman's belts. I don't know. I had this little skirt that was all cut out of different fabric. I used to shop in a shop that was called Mad Gear. Mad gear. Okay. I sound like Prince Charles. King Charles, sorry. 
Mud gear. Camilla, <laughs> should we go to Mud gear, see what we can grab for the fashion show? Get your spiritual sky perfumes, you get your incense sticks, you get your fashions, you get your bohemian frocks and tops and cut off jeans and that kind of thing. Surfer girl, hippie girl kind of stuff. Joseph's technical dream skirt. Jelly shoes. Oh my God, with the matching bag. The jelly bag. I didn't have a bag. Oh, I didn't have the bag. Yeah, you could get the little matching, but also the bubble skirts, puff skirts. Oh, puff ball. Yeah, I had puff ball shorts. Yeah. You wouldn't get me near a pair of those these days. No. God, no. You don't want to accentuate that part of your body. <laughs> no. Also, I mean, obviously, like the tube skirts. Amazing. Tubes. Oh, my God. I loved my tube I loved skirt. my tube skirt. I had a few in different colors, but the black one was always the best. Chewing gum jeans. I had those as well. Three-quarter length with a zip. Chewing gum jeans. Me too. It had every single fashion trend in one pair of jeans. My dad said, you're going to have to get a shoehorn to get you into that. Yeah. <laughs> the 80s. Just the best. I mean, I was the queen of the cheap plastic earring. I had the toothbrush. Oh, the, the cockatoo. <laughs> the map of Australia. Map of Australia. Do you remember the dangly clowns? Yuck. Yes, I do. I had every colour of the You were the wacky earring girl. I was the wacky earring girl. Kangaroos. Oh, oh no. Jen loved to buy us the wacky earring. <laughs> this young girl who I'm about to talk about. I'm not sure if she had the wacky earrings. Right. Because what I'm talking to you today about is the case of... Tina Resch and the Columbia Poltergeist, or otherwise known as Tina Resch and her spontaneous telekinesis. Wow, this sounds incredible. And this, of course, was in a random flick of the Chambers Dictionary of the Unexplained. Thank you, Jane Beacon. Geordie had a flick. She came up with Tina. <laughs> I had a quick flick, came up with Tina. Yeah. To be fair, this has got two titles because... It is a little bit all over the shop. Before we get into the meat of this case, I do yeah. want to talk a little bit about Tina because it does seem that she did not have a very nice childhood, mm. sadly. So she was born in 1969 in Columbus, Ohio. Did I say Columbia? Yeah, well, I was wondering about that because it's <laughs> Columbus. I think <laughs> Once I meant the Columbus. <laughs> I think I meant Columbus. I think it's auto-corrected on my notes and I didn't even realise. Right, so it's the Columbus Poltergeist. <laughs> Columbus, Columbus, Ohio. Gotcha. But when she was 10 months old, mm. and this is really awful, oh, no. uh, her mother dumped her at a local hospital oh. and pissed off, ran away. Terrible. And she was then fostered out to John and Joan Resch who had actually been foster parents for a long time. Yeah. They'd cared for loads of kids, like more than 200 kids, even though they had five actual children of their God, own. they love kids. They did love kids and they ended up adopting Tina. Aww. Yeah, it was really sweet. And when she was little, she was known as a happy-go-lucky kid. But sometimes she wasn't. Mm -hmm. And she would have little outbursts of rage. And at the age of eight, she was actually diagnosed as hyperactive and given meds to help control that. The old Ritalin. I'm not sure what exactly, but probably, yeah. probably Ritalin. Unfortunately, I think being on the meds and having these little outbursts at school, it does seem that Tina was bullied. And I think quite badly. Mm. And I think also she was targeted by the teachers oh, too no they told john and joan that tina would often throw pencils 
and blackboard erasers and just generally cause a scene. Mm. But interestingly, the teachers also admitted they never actually saw Tina doing it. Wow. But they were convinced it was her. So not very nice. I'm thinking of Carrie right now. It is a little bit Carrie. Yeah. The other thing too is that according to Tina, these teachers also kind of shamed her in front of the class by taking her out of the classroom and telling the other students they were taking her out of the room because it was time for her to have her meds. And when you stack all this up, the other kids bullied her. They called her crazy. And one time they even tied her up and called her names in the playground. Oh, my God. Yeah, it was relentless. It was horrible. And finally, Joan and John pulled her out of that school and she was homeschooled by a private tutor. And that's when actually Tina started to thrive until Saturday, March 3rd in 1984 when Tina was 14. Joan, who was doing the washing up at the time, looked up at the clock and noticed that the hands on this old school clock were spinning out of control. Then the lights in the kitchen began turning off, turning on, turning off all by themselves. Sounds like we got a poltergeist. Yes. And look, actually, initially Joan didn't think much of her because she just thought Tina was pranking her. But then the TV and microwave just turned on by themselves. (gasps) All at once? Is this all happening at once? This is all happening within minutes. And then the garbage disposal just turned on. Actually, that got me thinking about how 80s. If your hand was in there as well. But do you remember, only the rich kids, only the rich families had those garbage disposals. Were they called like a gurgler or something? I can't remember. I don't know what they were called. Well, I don't know. It's like stick your hand down the gurgler. Somebody will know this. Please get in touch. I've never heard of it. But can you imagine, like, what a ridiculous thing to have. I don't know anyone who has that. Like, nobody is putting their garbage down the sink these days. I'm sure, I mean, maybe it went down to a different pipe, but where's that going? This thing was going mad, grinding away, but with nothing in it. That's not supposed to happen. I think it's quite bad for your garbage disposal. Yes, to have have nothing nothing in in it. But also, it was just turning on, turning off by itself. The TV came on again. Tina this time was in the house went to turn it off but the picture and sound was still on she even unplugged it it was still on and then the washing machine started spinning on its own all the electricals in the house were going haywire what would you do I'd run run from the house once she realized oh I don't think Tina's pranking me she thought oh god it must be a power surge so she just let all this stuff just rumble on until her husband got home. Just accepted it. Yeah. And when he did, he couldn't figure out what was going on either. So he called in an electrician mate. But even when John was on the phone to this electrician, the phone line was going crazy. There was just this howling sound down down the oh line. Oh, God. The electrician came straight over and he checked everything over and it was all fine. And in fact... Strangely, I read that nothing was acting up when he was inspecting all the things. So he was like, yeah, I've got no answers for you as to why you say everything was going mad. But as soon as he went outside, everything began acting up again. And in his view, he just said, it's Tina pranking the family. And he left. Right. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Helpful. Yeah, I know. 100 pounds, please. Yeah, really. I've had that. But later that day, John was... At home, feeding one of the babies in her high chair. The chair with the baby in it 
began oh to move God. on its own. Oh, no. Yeah. And at that same time, Tina, who was in the room, was pushed out of her chair and thrown onto the floor. Oh, God. And seconds after that, a glass was thrown across the room, but from a different room. Look, within mm. hours, shit was being thrown everywhere. And the oh, room God. was trashed. It was full of broken glass and just stuff. Tina, she was a bit freaked out by this. And she's like, I've had enough. And she left the house and she went out for a walk. And when she did, everything mad that was happening inside stopped and went back to normal. No. And it was then that the penny dropped for Joan, who began to wonder if other things that Tina was being blamed for during her childhood and at school were actually out of her control. Because I think she sort of started to realise this is not Tina pranking. This is something else. Either way, Tina was connected to what was going on in that house. And the next day, it was the same again. Glasses being smashed, eggs thrown on the ceiling, other weird shit happening. And it was at this point that I think Joan and John were both like, there's a goddamn poltergeist in our house. So they got in touch with their minister who came around and tried to banish it, not just from the house, but also from Tina, because the minister felt that there was something possessing Tina, but Mm -hmm. whatever he did, it didn't work. And in fact, the minister got smashed in his leg by the sofa that just moved on its own. He was out of there just saying, I'm done. I've done everything I can. Thing is, everything just continued to escalate despite doctors finding nothing medically wrong with Tina. And at one point, Joan even reached out to a reporter called Mike Harden who came to the house with a photographer called Fred Shannon. And look, while they were there, they were just watching like what was going on. You know, things were happening and a rug lying on the floor flew up and covered Tina's head out of the blue. <gasps> oh, my God. But Fred, the photographer, didn't manage to get that on film. So he waited, and there's an account of him talking about this. He waited with his finger on the camera button, just hoping to catch some pics of more weird paranormal activity. And I read that that day, small objects in the house did begin to move on their own. Mm. Candles, lamps, wall hangings. While the journalist and photographer were there, they all heard the upstairs shower run without anyone turning it on while everyone was still in the room. The hands of the clocks again, turning, spinning around, and there was a rattling picture on the family room wall. They were like, shit. They took it down off the wall, put it behind the couch. It just slid out from behind the couch three times without any human touching it. And Tina's like, I just want this to stop. But as she said that, a telephone on a small table next to her flew through the air past her while she was just sitting on a chair. Apparently, she was freaked out. She's put the phone back where it was meant to be on the table. This happened six, seven times. Does it want her to make a phone call? E.T. phone home. I feel like there's a lot of film references and also references to things that we've talked about before, Michelle, already, but I can't believe it. I've never heard of Tina Resch or this story. I'm I'm thinking Enfield Haunting. I'm thinking Poltergeist. Look into the light, Carolyn. (laughs) All of that. And I'm just can't believe I've never heard of Tina Resch. Well, it made a big media splash because this phone six seven times it would just fling itself Mm. across the room again and again 
And the thing is that the photographer did manage to catch that in air. And I've seen the pictures of that phone. Apparently there were about 36 pictures, but there are a couple that really have been in the media quite a lot. And we're talking old school landline, you know, curly cord. Of course. And it does look like someone has thrown it, but it's not her. She's sitting there and you can yeah, see with this. With a rug on her face. <laughs> and the rug's off her face now. <laughs> okay. But there is a strange thing about this picture because there is actually another phone on the table. So I don't know why there's two phones. It's just a bit weird. But anyway, that's not all that happened. Apparently a cup of coffee slipped from a nearby table onto Tina's lap and then smashed against the fireplace and loads of other things. I did read that the photographer spoke out to the media and said that there was absolutely no way that Tina threw that phone. You know, it was weird. And when he published the picture of Tina looking at that phone in midair, well, that story was picked up all over America and she became a bit of an overnight media sensation she's 14 years old right this meant that loads of reporters went to the house hoping to see some poltergeist activity and get a scoop but unfortunately instead of seeing a poltergeist at work one reporter and his crew managed to catch tina in the act of hoaxing poltergeist (gasps) activity and because they thought they'd got the real deal and when they looked back Mm. They saw her deliberately moving this lamp and knocking it off the table. Wow. And they just had their news story, but it wasn't what they expected. It was Tina's a fake, basically. But Tina later explained that the reporters were just pissing her off with all of them, like begging her to do something supernatural so they could Mm -hmm. just get the story and piss off. So she said, you know, and these are her words. She said, I was tired and angry. I did it so the reporters could have what they came for and leave. And mm-hmm. do you know what? I get it. It must be annoying to have reporters camped out on your doorstep. Just ask Paul McCartney. Oh my God, yes. Despite this little kind of hoax, a lot of people still did really believe in Tina's claims. And reporter Mike Harden actually went to a renowned parapsychologist called Dr. William Rawl to ask mm. him to investigate Tina and her, what they were calling psychokinesis, which, you know, ability to move objects with your mm, mind. That's what Carrie had. That's Carrie. The blood. Yeah. The blood. I can't even think about that. But the blood was a trick that they played on her. I know. But then don't you remember what happened? She shut all the doors with her eyes. They're all going to laugh at you. She got so angry. Don't yeah. tell everybody. Don't tell everybody. what. Some people haven't seen Carrie. If you haven't seen her, go and see it. So this guy, Dr. William Roll, he did get in touch with her and went to the house for three days. Nothing happened. But on the fourth day he was there, while he was in Tina's room, a mug suddenly flew across the room and he saw it and he was like, okay, there is something in this. There is genuine supernatural shit taking place in this house. Uh, He also heard a crash in the master bedroom and when he went there, he found a painting on the floor. But when the family tried to put this painting back on the wall and he was there recording it, his tape recorder was suddenly, out of nowhere, thrown across the room along with a pair of pliers they were using to try and put the picture up with. Yeah. So now Dr. Roll was like convinced either the house or Tina had a poltergeist. And so Tina agreed to go with Dr. Roll to North Carolina to be tested for psychokinetic ability. However, in some tests carried out by a guy called Richard Broughton at the Institute for Parapsychology on March 29, 1984, 
the tests I did, Tina scored no better than chance. Right. Which is, I mean, 50-50, I guess. There was nothing that indicated she had any special abilities. And then she broke her leg and had to go home. Oh, how did that happen? They didn't say how she broke her leg. But then in a second set of tests in October that same year, 84, they hypnotized Tina first. And after they did that, everyone in that room witnessed flying objects whizzing around the room. Oh, my God. So they came to the conclusion that she did have some kind of ability, but she needed to not be present for it. And they realized that there were three times when paranormal activity would not happen. And that was when Tina was asleep, when she made deliberate attempts to try and make something happen. Yeah. Or when video cameras were trying to film her. Right. The other thing that this psychological testing that she was going through revealed were, unfortunately, signs of a neglected and abusive past. And apparently her emotional reactions were typical of much younger children. That she didn't have any psychosis. Then the following year in July 1985, she underwent more psychokinetic testing and it all came back negative. Uh-huh. So it seems like this was just a small period in her life yeah. where she did have this ability. Also, some neurological tests showed that she had brainstem anomalies and she was actually diagnosed with Tourette's, which Dr. Roll sort of connected with her telekinesis. Mm. Interestingly too, there was a magnetic storm that swept through the Earth's atmosphere what? during March 1 to 3 in 1984 exactly when all this happened and so there was also speculation that this could have caused Tina's telekinesis because Dr. Roll had this theory that Tina was highly susceptible to electrical energy but whatever the reasons Tina's psychokinetic episodes eventually did go away but she was quite fucked up by the whole experience and trigger warning here oh god here we go Tina's life it did not really go well after this. No. At the age of 15, Tina actually attempted suicide mm. but failed. But she did manage to run away from home because it did come to light that she'd been sexually abused by an older brother. An older brother? What, in the foster home? In the Resch family. And then at the age of 16, she got married to a guy whose name I actually tried to find on the internet but could not. By all accounts, he was abusive and controlling and she fled that marriage a year later. Then she met some other dude and got pregnant and gave birth to her daughter, Amber, on September 29 in 1988. She also left that guy. I think they actually got married, maybe, but I think they divorced. And by 1990, she'd fled that marriage Hmm. and she actually ended up going to live with Dr. Roll in Carrollton. Georgia. Is that okay? Well, just purely platonic. Okay. You know, he was married. He went to live with the family. He was kind, I think. And he was also a professor of psychology at the University of West Georgia. Like I said, I think he was kind of kind, but I also think he just wanted to study her. Wanted to experiment on her. Maybe a little bit. Yeah. He was observing her. He was documenting her. But according to Tina, she was pretty happy at that stage. She was taking classes in computers and nursing because he was encouraging her to do those sorts of things. Yeah, and she also began dating a guy called David Heron, who was a truck driver and was also a single parent with a toddler. And again, by all accounts, the couple seemed to be happy. How many kids did she have at this point? Just one. But again, trigger warning here. Oh, God. In April 1992... 
Tina's three-year-old daughter, Amber, was found beaten to death. (gasps) And she was in the care of David Heron at the time because Tina was actually out of the house visiting with a counsellor that she'd made friends with during all her psychokinetic testing. But despite her rock-solid alibi with witnesses proving she was nowhere, anywhere near it, she was charged with murder. Oh, what? How? Along with David Heron. Right. Okay. I don't know how. But she was, and the whole thing turned into a massive media frenzy. And, of course, her past was dragged up, with the media reminding people that she'd lied about the poltergeist, she'd yeah. faked the lamp moving, they slagged her for being married and divorced twice. This is terrible. And they just shamed her. Basically, her lawyers were like, this woman's not going to get a fair trial here. So the trial was moved to a nearby county called Floyd. But Tina's attorney was convinced that even in Floyd, she was not going to win. There was too much media attention, negative media attention surrounding her. A lot of hate, despite the fact she wasn't even fucking there. Her lawyer advised her to choose an Alford plea, which in the state of Georgia, where Tina was living at the time, meant that a defendant can plead to accepting punishment without the admission of guilt. And still maintain your innocence. So basically, it's like, I didn't do it. I'm not guilty, but I'll go along with this and just give me the punishment. It sounds kind of fucked up to me, but she was encouraged to go for this Alfred plea. And she did. Basically, her lawyer said, if you don't do this, they thought she was going to be convicted and sentenced to death. But she went on a lie detector test, which showed that she was telling the truth. She had a rock solid alibi. I mean, it's just awful it's fucking shocking tina was actually on heavy meds at the time so she was like okay i'll do it she did the alfred plea she was sentenced to life in prison plus a further 20 years how's that even fucking possible right and the fucked up thing despite being the one who was at home with amber at the time of her murder david heron was acquitted of Amber's murder in February 1995 and was instead convicted of failing to seek medical treatment. He got 20 years but was released in 2011. But Tina, she's still in prison and was denied parole in 2019. Oh, my goodness. And that is the case of Tina Resch. Honestly, I was like, ooh, supernatural. Oh, my God, this turned to true crime. Then it went really dark. Yeah, that's so awful, Michelle. I know. Sorry. Apologies from me, apologies to you. Why do I always sound so Australian? Well, I've got something supernatural right here, right now, because we chose a couple of names out of the Chambers Dictionary of the Unexplained. I got Mary. Mary, Mary. I've got Resurrection Mary here to tell you about today. It's a ghost story, Michelle, and it's Chicago's most famous ghost story, in fact. Or is it urban legend? The story is of Resurrection Mary, otherwise known as the Vanishing Hitchhiker. Those readers of the Fortean Times will know all about that. And the story goes a little like this. The setting is 1930s in Justice, Illinois, a few miles southwest of Chicago. There's a cemetery called Resurrection. Who would call a cemetery Resurrection? That's just asking for trouble here, guys. It is. It's like die 
And come back to life. And come back to life. Who wants that? This TV show that reminds me of that. What's it called? That Australian one where they all die and then they come back. And there's a French one like it as well and an American Ooh, one. I don't know. I can't remember what it's called. Anyway, a group of men are driving from the local dance hall along Archer Avenue, which is the road that the Resurrection Cemetery is on. And they reported picking up a young hitchhiker. She's all dressed in a, a white frock. She's party ready. She had light blonde hair. And blue eyes. Party ready. Party ready. Let <laughs> <laughs> go and party. Picking me up. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Come on, boys. It's like Madonna trekking down the <laughs> Archer Avenue. Anyway, well, I was actually seeing a Brady Bunch sister at this point or a virgin suicide right. style, you know, from that film. Anyway, on the journey, they did pick her up. And on the journey, she was t- totally silent. And as they passed Resurrection Cemetery, she disappeared into it. And according to the Chicago Tribune, there's a full-time ghost hunter by the name of Richard Crow. I don't think he's any relation to Russell that I know of. He <laughs> collected three dozen substantiated reports of Mary from the 1930s up to present day. Okay. Her backstory is explained somehow, despite no one actually knowing who she is. It's said that Mary had been at the local dance with her boyfriend at the Oh, Henry Ballroom. I say it like that, Michelle, because it says, oh, Henry. It's not like, oh, comma, Henry, like an Irish name. It's, oh, O-H, Henry Ballroom. <laughs> oh, That's what it's Henry. called. Oh. oh, Henry. This girl and her boyfriend, they had a bust up. Mary flounced off. She's walking up Archer Avenue towards the cemetery. But shortly later, after leaving the ballroom, she's hit by a car and the driver fled the scene, leaving poor Mary to die alone on the side of the road. And Mary's family were beside themselves at their loss and they buried her in her beautiful white dress and matching shoes at the Resurrection Cemetery. Mm -hmm. And ever since, local people, especially men, have been seeing what they think is this vanishing hitchhiker, they call her, or Resurrection Mary. A local man named Jerry Palace said he met Resurrection Mary in 1939 at a different ballroom. They were rife back in those days. <laughs> it's a great Gatsby era. Yeah. He said the two danced and shared a kiss before she asked him to drive her home along Archer Avenue, where she got out of the car and promptly disappeared right in front of Resurrection Cemetery. You can have sex with a ghost. That's what it sounds like. He had a pash with the ghost. He pashed a ghost. In 1973, Resurrection Mary turned up again at another dance, Harlow's Nightclub. Honestly, I have to say, you're right. She was party ready. This girl likes to party. She was totally party ready. (laughs) I know. So now she's at, what is she, the 70s? So it's disco time. Harlow's (laughs) Nightclub. She's wearing the same dress. At this point, it looks like a faded wedding gown. And she was described as having big spooly curls coming down from a high forehead. It's painting quite a shocking picture in my mind. She was really pale and she had powdered her face and body. That's what witnesses say. It sounds a little bit Nicole Kidman, don't you think? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, all white face and curly hair. Party ready. She was dancing alone in a crazy fashion and no one saw her arrive or leave. 
What was that? Was that Resurrection Mary? Could have been. The same year, a taxi pulled into Chet's Melody Lounge, which was across the street from the Resurrection Cemetery. And this taxi driver was looking for his fare, who had absconded without paying. And he believes it to be fitting the description of Resurrection Mary. More sightings were reported in 1976, 1978, 1980 and 1989. And they all involve cars hitting or narrowly missing Mary outside that bloody resurrection cemetery. Wow. By the time they get out of their car, she's gone. She's outside the cemetery going, let's party. Let's party. (laughs) I just love to dance. (laughs) It's also said that her handprints are burned into the wrought iron fence at the entrance of the cemetery. Though this has been explained away as damage from a truck, either going in and out or something, but not a ghost. But does it look like... That I have no idea. I'm imagining it's handprints somehow. You'd see what you want to see if you believe in this. Yeah. People have tried to link Mary to someone real that's buried in the cemetery, and they discovered through their research a woman named Mary Bragovi, a young Polish Hungarian woman who died in nineteen thirty four in a car crash. Now, a friend of Mary Bragovi heard that she was being touted as the Resurrection Mary by mid-1980s. So she told reporters about the last time she saw her, which was the day of her car crash. She says they had planned to go shopping together, accepted a ride to the shopping precinct from two young men who Mary Bragovi had met previously. But this woman's name was Rutkowski. Something Rutkowski. I didn't write her name down. Nice one, Geordie. Never mind. So we're going to call her Rutkowski. That's good. So Rutkowski said that she found these boys irritating. Wild boys, she called them. Didn't like them one bit. Eventually, she convinced Mary, we're getting out of this car, despite they weren't even anywhere near the destination. But not before Mary Bragovi planned a date with them for later that night. So then they get out of the car. They're arguing because Mary Bragovi is saying to Rutkowski, God, that was really rude. You're so unfriendly. They're really nice. And also, she's upset because Rutkowski was bagging out her taste in men. These two girls kind of fell out and went their separate ways. And they were nowhere near the shops. They went home. But Rutkowski felt strongly these boys were trouble. And the next morning, Rutkowski's mother woke her up with the sad news that Mary had been killed that night, but not on Archer Avenue. The accident was actually in another part of Chicago. So poor Mary Bragovi, it turns out, had been travelling with these naughty boys and another girl who persuaded her to change seats after the driver just got on her tits. So this girl sitting next to him, he's really annoying because, let's face it, he annoyed Rutkowski as well. And she said, mm. oh, Mary, can we swap seats? So she did. But thanks to this generous move, poor Mary Bragovi lost her life due to being thrown through the window when they had a car accident. The others mm. survived. Everyone else survived. This is probably grasping at straws if they think that it's Resurrection Mary because Mary Bragovi had short, dark hair and she was buried in a different coloured dress, an orchid coloured dress. What's that colour? Is it kind of orangey peach? I would think purple. Maybe. Nevertheless, the cemetery caretaker at Resurrection was heard saying he regularly saw a ghost walking the grounds and he believed that was Bragovi. Not necessarily Resurrection Mary, but definitely Bragovi. Well, there could be more than one, to be fair. Well, it's called Resurrection Cemetery. Let's face it. Come on, guys. (laughs) So the search continued for Resurrection Mary and another possibility came up. Anna Maria Norkus, who died in 1927, also in a car crash, whilst on her way home from the O. Henry ballroom. And it could be more likely because this Mary, though only 13 years old, 
was blonde and slim and she loved to dance. And she had begged her dad to take her to the dance hall for her birthday. So he did. And on that evening of July 20th, 1927, they arrived at the O. Henry Ballroom along with a friend of her father's and the partner of her father's friend. They left around 1.30am, passing Resurrection Cemetery by way of Archer Avenue. But at some point on their journey, the car lost control and they fell off a hidden 25-foot deep railroad cut in the road. Sadly, Anna Maria was instantly killed, but her father survived and he suffered terrible abuse for allowing his daughter to attend the dance. But in reality, it was the fault of the road workers who neglected to put warning signs up because another death occurred that very same night right. in the same way. So it was a road hazard. Local resident Gail Ziemba lives right across the road from Resurrection Cemetery and has lived there for 20 years. She has been quoted as saying, I've never seen anything. Oh, Okay. <laughs> But believers counter this by reminding us that only men can see resurrection, Mary. Oh, that's bullshit. A ghost is a ghost is a ghost. Men such as the owner of Chet's Melody Lounge, Chet Prasinski, who back in 1996 was backing his car out of his driveway when a man came rushing over, distressed, shouting that he needed to call for assistance because he had hit a woman on Archer Avenue but couldn't find the body. Now, there was a truck driver who had witnessed this and he was staying at the scene in case he could find the woman. So Chet called the police, but he was concerned that he would look a bit of a fool because it might seem like he was staging a publicity stunt for his bar because that has been linked to Mary. Right. The whole incident was quietly brushed under the carpet. Mm. So we have a vanishing woman here in England. It's in Kent near Maidstone, to be precise. It's a place called Blue Bell Hill, which sounds gorgeous. And that's where it's said that a spirit of a young woman who wears white appears in front of moving cars, staring calmly at the driver as the car goes right through her. Like in the search for Mary, Kent residents usually link this ghost to a 1965 incident where three young women were killed in a car crash on Blue Bell Hill just hours before one of them was due to get married. But some would say that these apparitions are more than ghosts. Try earth goddesses, Michelle, who would take the shape of either a young woman or a crone and appear at times of environmental upheaval and crisis as a warning to mankind. For example, when forests are being dug up to build roads or in the case of Archer Avenue, it's said to be a sacred indigenous site. Now, Michelle, is it bullshit? (laughs) You decide. I have to say, I probably do call bullshit on it. The thing is, you do actually hear about ghostly hitchhikers a lot. Not just Resurrection Mary, but it seems to be a very folkloric thing that a girl has died, not in a party gear, but there's always like a female hitchhiker who gets picked up and then vanishes. It's an old one. Yeah, it's an oldie Mm. and a goodie. The old vanishing hitchhiker. Just pick up any copy of 40 in Times, you'll find it in there. Bullshit. Speaking of bullshit, Michelle, the Chambers Dictionary of the Unexplained has another Mary, which I am going to tell you about. Mary Toft. She lived between 1701 and 1763, back in those great times. And we talked about them recently in the witchy times. She was an English woman from Godalming in Surrey, not far from where I'm sitting right now. And she caused quite a stir in 1726 when doctors believed she had given birth to rabbits. What? Uh, Oh, that is ridiculous. Mary was married and she was around 24, 25 years old and she and her husband had already had three children. Mm. 
she's pregnant again for a fourth time, and as it was in those days, she had to continue working in the fields. While she was pregnant, it's said that Mary developed a fascination with the furry creatures, rabbits, and after getting excited because she saw one during a shift in the fields, she miscarried. Now, this story reminds me of the film The Favourite starring Olivia Coleman. Did you see that? That was so no, good. Really good. There's a wreck for you. It was really good. It's about Queen Anne and it's all pretty fictionalised. But in the film, she has 17 rabbits, one for each child she's lost. Oh, because God. Queen Anne, if you go to Kensington Palace, you will see the room where she's got all of the baby's cots because she, she kept having miscarriage after miscarriage, this poor woman. Can you imagine? That's heartbreaking. But back to Mary Toft. This is when she claimed that she then gave birth to various animal parts after the miscarriage. She reported that one was as big as her arm. So you know that we've talked about globsters, which have like... Yeah. A tooth and a bit of hair in it or something, you know. Yes. Maybe there hold, is something. Hold your thoughts. Oh. Michelle, hold your thoughts. Okay, Hear me out. I'm hearing you out. Hear me out. <laughs> it's going to get, listen, I'm going to give you a trigger warning oh. right here, okay? The attending women at this strange birth took one of these pieces to the local surgeon and baby deliverer, John Howard, who came to investigate. Mary once again went into labour and appeared to give birth to several more animal parts. Over the next few days, John Howard helped her give birth to, and this is quotations because it's oldie-worldy language, three legs of a cat of a tabby colour and one leg of a rabbit. And it's spelt rab-et, not it. The guts were as a cat's and in them were three pieces of the backbone of an eel. What? Devil's work. Oh my God. Toft appeared to go into labour once more and over the next few days delivered more pieces of rabbit. I don't like saying that. Sorry. Which orifice is this coming out of, Geordie? The usual one, Michelle. Because I feel like she, if she's shitting out rabbit, I could understand that. But you can't be giving she's birth She's giving birth to, to rabbit. Keep your mind open. He immediately informed several other prominent physicians, which brought the case to the attention of Nathaniel St. Andre, who was the king's surgeon. This is King George I. Here is a letter from John Howard to a doubting physician. Sir, since I wrote to you, I have taken or delivered the poor woman of three more rabbits, all three half-grown, one of them a dun rabbit. The last leapt 23 hours in the uterus before it died. As soon as the 11th rabbit was taken away, up leapt the 12th rabbit, which is now leaping. If you have any curious person that is pleased to come post, may see another leap in her uterus, and she'll take it from her if he pleases, which will be a great satisfaction to the curious. If she had been with child... She has but 10 days more to go, so I do not know how many rabbits may be behind. No! (laughs) I have brought the woman to Guildford for better convenience. I am, sir, your humble servant, John Howard. Jesus Christ. St. Andre went to see her with John Howard and within hours she delivered a rabbit's torso. Uh. St. Andre examined the rabbit to see if it had ever breathed. This is a test that people do for, uh, like if a baby is born, to test if it it was actually still birth to make sure nothing untoward has happened. You can place a piece of its lung in water to see if it would float, and it did, which meant that the lung had been aerated and it had breathed. He then examined Toft, Mm. and his findings were that the rabbits were bred in her fallopian tubes. And if this wasn't enough, the following day, St. Andre was present to deliver some rabbit skin, followed by a rabbit's head. Sorry. 
It's so rank. I'm sorry. Oh, my God. Ectopic rabbit rumblings. Mm. Awful. These were medically inspected and found to resemble parts of a cat. He then concluded that Toft's case was genuine, despite all of this. But the king sent another surgeon, Siriasis Arlas. We're going to call him Arlas for my benefit, really, because it's a big old name. purposes of the tape. (laughs) Who wasn't so convinced. So when he arrived to examine Mary, he found no evidence of pregnancy. He also noted that Toft was acting suspiciously. She was keeping her knees and thighs together as if to prevent something from dropping down. Ew. So she's shoving things up there. Could be. Starting to look that way. He also found John Howard's behaviour suspicious as he wouldn't let Arla's assist with the delivery. In the moment, though, Arla's told them he did believe them, even though he was suspicious. And he asked to take some samples back to London for examinations. And his findings were evidences of these pieces of flesh having been cut with a man-made instrument and he also noted bits of straw and grain in their droppings so she's giving birth to things that have had droppings ew even worse oh my god is this some weird kind of sex ritual with animals (laughs) i'm not liking this well, the mind can wander, can't it, during this story? Meanwhile, back in Guildford, there's Mary still giving birth to rabbits and becoming really unwell. She's got a pain in her abdomen. Mm-hmm. I wonder why. Arla's attempted to expose this as a hoax. Mm. So he brought her to London where more examinations revealed the right side of her abdomen was slightly enlarged. Ew. Another physician then delivered what he thought was a hog's bladder. Other doctors were present and they weren't really sure what they were looking at until they noticed it smelled of urine. No, mm. no. Yes. At this point, Mary was famous all over the land as the lady who gave birth to rabbits. Some believed in something called maternal impression. This is where people believe that conception and pregnancy might be influenced by what the mother has either dreamt or seen and because we're back in the kind of a long time ago 1700s people can believe these things you know witches and all that stuff is really going off yeah an investigation to uncover the truth took place and it was discovered that for the past month toft's husband joshua had been buying young rabbits also a staff member where mary was being investigated confessed to being bribed by mary's sister-in-law to bring her a rabbit Eventually, she confessed to the hoax. She claimed that after her real miscarriage, her cervix was still open. Which it can be, Michelle. That's what happens. So she had an accomplice pop the body of a cat with its claws into her womb. Just pop that in there. And I'd say around about now, anyone with a cat or a womb will be switching off. Sorry. Oh, my God. It's horrendous. What makes you think, oh, I've lost my baby. I'm just going to shove a cat up there. Money, 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 money. Oh, she thought it would money. give her some money. Also Jesus. up there was the head of a dead rabbit. In addition to this, they came up with the story about Toft working in a field and being startled by a rabbit, becoming obsessed with rabbits, da-da-da-da-da. And this carried on with animal parts being inserted into her vagina for all her further contractions and deliveries. Oh, my God. So she didn't get the money. She thought she'd be paraded as a miracle of science and that was preferable to working in fields while up the duff. But ultimately, Mary Toft was thrown in prison for fraud or rather for being a vile cheat and imposter. 
was the charge. And the damage to the medical profession at the time meant the public lost their faith and a lot of embarrassment ensued because there was the king's physician who, for a little while, was all on board. Was believing this rubbish. Oh, my God. The affair impacted society for some time with satirists having a field day. (laughs) We've got Alexander Pope and William Pulteney anonymously, and now I don't know how I've got their names there if it was anonymous, but they seemed to have published the following satirical ballad called The Discovery or The Squire Turned Ferret. It was published in (laughs) 1726. And I'm going to finish this episode with a little snippet or maybe it's the whole thing. Most true it is, I dare to say, ere since the days of Eve, the weakest woman sometimes may, the wisest man deceive. And that's the story of the lady who gave birth to a bunch of rabbits. Or did she? Or that's the story of a woman who put dead cats and rabbits (laughs) up a fanny and then had them pulled out. I would say prison would be the least of her problems at this point. I would say that there's going to be some infections. I would say that there's going to be some some, issues. Some mental fucking health issues here. Yeah. Like, to be fair, she was probably not in the right state of mind after losing a child. She probably was just wild with grief. But come on, you don't shove a kitty cat and a bunny. Cut up. Cut up. a pig's bladder. Oh, man. Grim. It's grim. At the time, Michelle, something else I read, at the time, rabbits were not pets. Because, you know, going back to the favourite where this queen had all these pet rabbits, I read a little bit about the film. Rabbits weren't pets at the time. That was just a little bit of artistic licence that the director took. At that time, rabbits were food. Right. But jugged hair and roast rabbit pie and all those things mysteriously disappeared off tables around that time. (laughs) No one wanted to eat them. No. Oh, my God. Well, thank you, I think. I don't know what I'm thanking you for because that was grim. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm so glad to have brought you that. That was just a little something from Chambers Dictionary of the Unexplained. Thank you once again, Jane Beacon, for your generous gift. The gift that keeps giving. It is indeed. It just keeps giving. Maybe we need to vet these stories. <laughs> Why is it too much? I'm just shocked that anybody would put like dead dead animal parts up the vag. But you know what? We did do a story about a guy who put a live eel up his fucking asshole. You love the things up the bum, Michelle. I do. You don't mind if it's up a bum. No, I, it's just a different hole and it gets One up me. the bum, no harm done, it seems for Michelle. But <laughs> when it comes to the front bottom, it's a different story. Oh, dear. Well, look, thank you so much for that really terrifying story my pleasure give me nightmares as long as there's nothing more to add i think there really is only one thing left to say peace out michelle whatever you do wherever you are just just keep keep eavesdropping 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 eavesdropping